There are a lot of advantages to living in Winnipeg. <laughs> and I know you're waiting to hear one on a day like today when it's theoretically we are in spring and we have the temperature and weather that we do. But one of the advantages of living in Winnipeg is a big sky, right? Like we get 180 degrees. There's no None of those mountains blocking the view, as the old farmer said. And we have amazing uh, sunsets, and for some of us, we have amazing sunrises. Although the sunrise is available for everyone, we just don't always take advantage of that. It's a, it's a big sky. There's something, though, about mountains that are pretty attractive and, uh, and kind of dazzling. The thing, though, one of the challenges about climbing mountains, though, is that you see a rise, and you climb to the top and you think, ah, now I've made it. And you get to the top, oh, there's a little bit more to go. And so you go, ah, kind of gird up your loins, that's what the King James would say. And you roll up your sleeves and say, all right, we'll get to the next rise, and then we'll be at the top, and then, oh, now I can see the top. And you look back at all the way you've come and think, my goodness, I've come a long way, but I've still got a long way to go. That's kind of where we're at in the book of Nehemiah. A lot of things have happened, and uh, Nehemiah and his crew have really uh, accomplished quite a lot. Um, here's where we're going to uh, pick up in chapter 7. After the wall had been rebuilt, remember that was the big project that Nehemiah had been back, uh, traveled back to Jerusalem to build, rebuild this, this wall, this ruined wall where the city had no defenses and it was just in terrible disrepair. And he rallied the troops. They got the wall built. And he had set the doors in place, which is a major project. Think of the huge timbers and all the work it would take to build these by hand. No home people in those days. It's quite an accomplishment. So after he got all that done, there was more to do. Kind of like life. You can't really rest in your laurels. You, laurels you, you, you get to the top of the next peak and you go, oh, and you look up and go, oh, I guess there's more to do. All right, Lord, what's next? And that's kind of the stage that Nehemiah was in, in this story. He had spent a lot of time working on the municipal infrastructure um, in Jerusalem. And now all the walls and gates have been repaired. But now he was going to focus on the, what I call the human infrastructure, on the reason why he, real reason why he went back to Jerusalem. It was for the people. It wasn't to get his name on a little brick monument somewhere saying, this wall was built by Nehemiah, blah, 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 blah. He wasn't in it for that. He wasn't in it to build a wall. God had sent him back to build a people, to build a spiritual community. And so, Again, he rolls up his sleeves and gets to work. So after the wall had been rebuilt, and he had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the Levites were appointed. He put into place the human infrastructure that was needed to run the city effectively. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hananiah, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel. Pay close attention, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. And I said to them, 
The gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. When the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors and bar them. Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some of their posts and some near their own houses. What are we to make of this? It seems like kind of a minor detail. Nehemiah tried to pick the right people, have the right people in place, the right kind of um, people with the right kind of character, people who were reliable, people of integrity. And then he comes up with the right plan. He says, you know what, we're not going to open up our gates at the crack of dawn. Anybody who wants to come in and do business, they can wait. He realizes that this is a new community he's building, and, and he needs to put in place good boundaries so people can take time and meditate and think, okay, rather than rushing on to do business, they need to do business with God and each other and be in a healthy place. And also, well, don't leave the doors open all night. There, there is a time for visitors to go. In a sense, he's focusing on putting in some boundaries to build that new healthy community. Do you notice who he re, uh, appoints as security guards? You have to be a resident of Jerusalem. You have to have something personally invested in the safety of the city. He doesn't want any hired hands. He wants people who live within the city to act as security guards. Some of their posts and some near their own houses. Do you remember that when they were rebuilding the wall, that some of the folks were building a section of the wall right in their neighborhood, right next door? Pretty shrewd, eh? I, as I was reading this, it reminded me of sandbagging season in Manitoba. Where are people going to build the most effective dike? Right outside their own backyard, right? And it's great when you have the opportunity to go and volunteer. It's great exercise. Lord willing, we won't get much of it this spring. We'll see. But that's what it reminded me of, sandbagging in Manitoba. Everyone is watching their own neighborhood. And as this happens, the wall is built and the city is safe. So Nehemiah realizes as he's rebuilding the human infrastructure of Jerusalem, he's got to get the right people in place and have the right plan. Then, after he's done with this administration, he is setting people up for spiritual renewal. He invites all the people to come and hear the reading of the law. Now, let me give you a little bit of background. It's been a long time since these people have been taken away to exile to Babylon, and finally they're back. The law was written in Hebrew, and these folks spoke Aramaic, which was quite a different language. It was similar, but quite different. So they really didn't have access to the Bible. It'd be similar back centuries ago when, uh, in the Catholic Church, when the, all the mass and services were in Latin and the Bible had not been translated into the common language of the people. So, here's what Nehemiah does. He invites all the people to come together, and they show up. This is a pastor's dream. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate assembled in Jerusalem. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. I don't know if you've ever been in a rowdy rock concert and they're chanting for the band. They're going, Ezra, Ezra, Bible, Bible. That's what they want. These people are like, you know, they come on, bring it on. So that's what happens. So, on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women, all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon, 
make my sermons go too long. Daybreak till noon, do the math. As he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others, children who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands. And so people do that in church. And responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. What a receptive audience. The Levites, I'm not going to read their 13 names. You can check it out yourself. Instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that people understood what was being read. As we're, I think this is what happened. As we would read it in Hebrew, and then the Levites, there were 13 of them gathered up, kind of in stereo, this big crowd, so they don't have microphones like we have. And these Levites would give the translation and give the explanation, this is what it means. So people are understanding what God's word says. Now watch what happens. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, the teacher of the law, and all the Levites who were instructed, the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. So here's this pent-up demand to hear what God has to say to these people. And it's being translated and explained. And you can just see the lights are going on all over the crowd. They're going, oh, I didn't know that. Or, oh, now I get it. Ah. Oh. And people start to weep. Why are they weeping? Ezra's goal is not to make them feel guilty or sad like some manipulative preachers would try to do with you. Or me. He's just trying to make them understand this is what this is what a relationship with God looks like. Here's what a covenant friendship with the Creator looks like. Here's what He requires of you. Here's what is offered to you in return. And people are saying that we didn't know. We didn't measure up. We failed. Oh my. And they begin to weep because they're broken. Brokenness before God is a good place to start in life. If you've never been broken before God, well, I pray you'll experience that. Not that I would wish you ill. Not that it's my goal to make you feel better. My goal is just to tell the story of God today and let Holy Spirit take over. Because you know what happened in this story? This is what church historians would call a revival. Because it wasn't just an ordinary lecture or sing along like a Sunday, a typical Sunday morning. God was breaking it. God was drawing these people to himself. He was doing something that can only be explained by God revealing himself. There is an expression that I am sometimes guilty of using. We talk about an event where, oh, God showed up, which is really not accurate because God is always there, so how can he show up? But what that expression has meant is God reveals himself in a special way. The, the old English uh, word is manifests. He's like, all of a sudden, ooh, there's something here that's powerful that I can't explain, and something's going on. 
And it's not because of the catchy music or especially the dazzling preacher. There's something else that's going on. It's God's spirit connecting with my spirit and pointing out things. And that's what's happening to this large crowd of people. And they're weeping. They are broken. And they've been listening for a long time. And they must have been just physically and emotionally exhausted by this time. From daybreak till noon. And that's why Nehemiah and Ezra and all the Levites saying, don't, don't mourn or weep. We, we recognize your brokenness. But here's what they go on to say. Nehemiah says, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. Go and celebrate and share it with people who don't have anything. That's why when we have lunches here, we say, don't worry if you didn't bring anything, just come, right? Because there's always enough. And in that situation, there's always enough folks who didn't have anything. Why? Because this day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. I always wonder where that verse came from. Nehemiah. The Levites calmed all the people saying, be still for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. People were hearing the first, maybe perhaps for the first time, God's word explained in a language and a way they could understand and it was having a powerful effect on them. It was pointing out their shortcomings and sin and they wanted to get straight with God. And then all of a sudden, Nehemiah and Ezra and all the other spiritual leaders says, hey, this is a special day. We understand your brokenness. But, now 1 John 1, 9 had not been written yet, but I think this is what they were saying. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's kind of a foreshadowing that. They're saying, hey, you know what? You get right with God, he'll get right with you. Don't worry. Go home and celebrate because this is a holy day, a special day. So set it apart and celebrate. So we've seen a structural renewal in Jerusalem. We've seen a spiritual renewal. People are alive to God. They're responding. Wait till you see. You won't believe what happens next. Then other people went away to eat and drink, sent portions of food to celebrate with great joy because now they understood the words that have been made known to them. And then, just over three weeks later, they come back, they gather together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places, confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. Lord, this is where we blew it in the past. This is why we got exiled in the first place. They stood where they were, and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of a day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. So that, that's hours and hours of reading from the law and confession and in worshiping. And then they said to Ezra and Nehemiah and the leaders, we want to enter into a covenant relationship with our Creator God. And here are the things. You can read the, the details. I'm giving you a quick survey of chapters 7 to 12 this morning. So if I'm moving quickly, that's why. And I'm leaving out a ton of names. So those of you who are real keeners, leave the names on your own. Okay? But here's a summary of what they, the, the covenant they want to make with God. 
okay, there's not going to be any intermarriage with surrounding peoples. It's just that they were watering down. They, it's so important when you get married to have the same belief system, to be on the same page. And that's what was weakening the nation. We're going to keep the Sabbath special, holy. We're not going to do business with our neighbors on the Sabbath. We're not going to think about money for one day. We're just going to trust God. We're going to forgive debts every seven years. Can you imagine? Now, Jim Flaherty just resigned. But can you imagine what our new finance minister, how he would be received if he said, okay, the nation of Canada, every seven years, the debts are forgiven. It wouldn't last very long. Bay Street would have his head on a platter. But that's how they set up their economy. That's how God wanted them to set up their economy. So that there wouldn't be ongoing generational poverty. That people, people could possibly, if, if they had several bad seasons or bad crops, they wouldn't be indebted forever. Their, their family wouldn't be wiped out. But they would have a chance. They would have, in golf, you call it a mulligan. Or if you're working on your computer, com computer, you reboot it and start over again. So every seven years, you know that this is coming up, we can start over again and get out of debt. And to let the land lie fallow every seven years, to take care of the environment, to be the stewards of the land. <clears throat> Presenting all firstborn at the temple. What this meant when you had a firstborn son, um, you would uh, give him a special offering to God saying, hey, thank you very much. Or your firstborn animal, you would actually present that animal and give it to the temple for worship. Which, in an impoverished society like this, is a real testament thing. Then they'd support the temple worship through tithes and offerings and make sure that the Levites were taken care of so that worship could be ongoing, so they could maintain that connection with God. So all this crowd would assemble three weeks after the revival. This is how God works with them. They get Ezra and Nehemiah, all the leaders together, and all the, all the leaders of the household assembled and saying, this is what we're going to do. And they sign their names. And you can read about it in chapter 11, I think. Long list of names of everybody who signed this covenant. Because that's an ongoing effect of this spiritual renewal. Covenant renewal. And their conclusion was, we will not neglect the house of our God. How does this apply to Yilam Chapel? Nice story, way back when. I'm hoping that you're asking the question, so what right now? Well, here's what we need. We need structural renewal. We need to get the right people in the right places to serve in their spiritual gifts and being God-given passions. Give me an example. We've been able to recruit some folks to welcome people at our front door. Did you know that we have a door that opens on Portage Avenue? Theoretically. Now, I have to tell you, a few months ago when I was just starting to be I took the bus here on a Sunday morning and went to the front door and I got a really warm welcome when I rattled the door. It was locked. And I know in the past we've had people watching that door, but now we do. We have gatekeepers, welcomers there. We've just given them a few simple instructions, right? That's just an example of of how if you, it's a beautiful thing to see if you get the right people in the right places to serve in their spiritual gifts and God-given passions, it's a beautiful thing. And that's what we're trying to develop here at Elam. Because God's got a role for everybody. There's no passengers on this boat, baby. No passengers. Everybody can do something, right?
according to your gifts and passions and abilities, God's got opportunities for us. Don't just warm a pew. So boring. And you wonder why life is so boring and so lame. You barely scrape in here and say, ah, entertain me, dazzle me. That's not the way you do it. You join the team, you get in the game. <coughs> Don't be a passive observer, be an active participant, right? So that's, uh, as we get the right people and the right plans in place, God can bless them. So that's structural renewal, that's spiritual renewal. Here's a challenge for us today. I know the story of Nehemiah was a special event where God especially manifested himself to people. He stirred people's hearts. I once heard one of my seminary professors say, you can have just as much revival as you want. I thought, what? What do you mean? He says, as you give more and more of your life over to God, and as you trust him and take risks, good spiritual risks with him, you can have as much of God as you want. I guess so. So the question for us today is, are we going to settle for spiritual mediocrity? Come in, punch the clock on a Sunday morning. Well, I made it. I have to confess, there are some days when I've been sitting where you're sitting, even up here, thinking, okay, made it, scratch it off my list. But where was God? Well, he was right here. I would just walk past him. I'm famous for that. But if we pay attention to what God is saying to us, we will discover that he wants a relationship with us even more than we crave with him. So are we going to settle for spiritual mediocrity? What a sad waste of space that would be. Some of you know my son Micah. He's a bit of a character. He's always been a character. When he was 10 years old, we were having a sharing time in our church that we were planting. And it went on a little bit longer, and the kids were going to be dismissed for Sunday school after the sharing time. People, you know, God was kind of moving and it got longer and longer and longer. And then, finally, it seemed to shut down at night. The kids were all sitting in the front and they said, thank you for being so patient. I want to acknowledge, thank you for being so patient. I'm just about to send you up to Sunday school and Micah, all of age 8 or 10, says, I hope so. I've just been sitting here gathering dust. <laughs> great one I don't know where you missed that. But that's very instructive. It would be a shame for us just to come in and gather dust on a Sunday morning, right? Why settle for spiritual mediocrity? We talked about structural renewal, spiritual renewal, and relational renewal here in Elam. That whole covenant that the Israelites set up was all about relationships. Who to connect with, who to be in the family, how to take care of the poor, how to, how to make sure that the worship of God goes on in a powerful, meaningful way. And I guess my question to you, for all of us, is how are we investing in healing? Now, I'm not trying to recruit you for a committee or something that's just going to take up a lot of your time. Not necessarily. Maybe go ahead as I know. But think about how can I contribute here? What can I bring to the table? And everyone is something to offer. Okay? Mm -hmm. Don't say, well, I'm this or I'm not that. We all have gifts. We all have something that we can bring to the table. We heard this morning about our financial situation. And I'm not here to act as a bagman, but I do want to encourage you. I don't know if you realize it, but one of the ways that we can give is through pre-authorized giving. We've got brochures on the link, the table out there you can pick up. Ways of investing in you and 
taking a good risks for God and investing in something that's going to last. Stock market's up and down. It's all over the place, isn't it? It's not really, I shouldn't be saying that to you, though, but it is. It's all, it's all over the map. You can invest in something that's going to last forever and ever and ever and ever. That's the ministry of this church where we're all called together to do. You can invest your time. You can invest time praying and seeing how God's going to show up. The bottom line in all of this is that we will not neglect the house of God. That's, that was the end of the, the last line of the covenant that the Israelites made with, um, with God in the presence of Nehemiah and everybody else. We will not neglect the house of God. So let me encourage all of us today. If we want to see God move in our midst, let's not neglect the house of God. Let's, let's make this a priority. Not just showing up on Sunday. That's, that's valuable. But saying, okay, how am I going to be a part of this structural renewal? Or this spiritual renewal? This, this personal renewal? This relational renewal? How can I be a part of that? And ask God to show us. Let me pray for us. Father, we want to thank you for the story of Nehemiah. Thank you that the way you answered prayer and moved. It must have been just an amazing time to see that happen. Father, we are anxious and hungry for you to move here at Elam. Those of us who are honest will admit that we're broken people. We need you. We need you to change us from the inside out. And I pray that you would manifest yourself, that you would be real to folks and reveal yourself to every seeking heart here today. We pray these things confidently in the name of Jesus.